you brought your Bibles with you, go ahead and open it up to the book of 2 Kings. I'm going to be reading from there in just a moment. If you don't have your Bible with you, don't worry. We'll be posting those passages on the screen overhead here in just a moment. But if you have brought yours, open it up to 2 Kings chapter 6. And uh, today is the end of our 21-day fast. We started at the beginning of this month. And as we mentioned earlier in our uh, opening prayer time, as well as has been alluded to here, um, I just believe that God does amazing, incredible, over-the-top things whenever His people get serious about getting before Him and His presence. And so today's the last day. The fast breaks as soon as service is, service is over. I'm sure local restaurants will be happy that you will, uh, you will be patronizing their particular, uh, their particular uh, location or whatever food they're serving. But before we get there, before we get to the restaurant, we need to hear what God's saying, don't we? We need to get bread out of the oven of heaven. And uh, my wife mentioned to you that uh, this week we were staying up late one night and we were watching uh, some Christian television. And uh, I'm just going to say it again. I'm not kicking at all cylinders right now. So if I, if I don't seem like I'm moving at all cylinders, it's not your imagination. Uh, it's been kind of a tough week. I uh, caught one of those uh, flu bugs apparently that came through. And uh, man, that'll knock you for a loop. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm better than I was. If, if last Sunday I was at zero, which I probably was, I'm probably about at 75% this morning. So I'm grateful I'm moving the right direction. Uh, but I'd still ask for your indulgence because if I don't feel good, my mind doesn't always operate at 100% capacity. So, so if I say something that sounds crazy, yeah, just say, ah, he's not feeling good, all right? Amen. We were watching the other night, though, some Christian television, and uh, my son's pastor, uh, Clayton's pastor, Jensen Franklin, was on television, and, and uh, he was sharing a little bit on the fast, and, and some others were there, and it just really ministered to us some things. And there was just a confirming word that came across uh, that really spoke to my heart uh, that I'm going to pick up and I'm going to teach a little bit this morning. It's actually out of Second Kings here. Chapter 6. I have been reading this passage in 2 Kings chapter 6 for what has probably been months. I think I've taught on it once before, sometime several years back. And um, I just believe it's a word for us this morning as we conclude this time of corporate discipline. And uh, if you have, were not able to be with us through this 21 days, here's the good news. You know, you can enter into a fast at any moment that you feel led to do that. And as Pastor Noah mentioned, you know, for some, you may take it on a little bit further. For others, you may break it at this point. And who knows, in a few weeks, God may ask you to fast a few days. There's numerous ways you can enter into a fast. But for us as a corporate body, I want us to begin to hear what God would have us know at this particular moment as we've reached the end of our 21 days. And it's in 2 Kings chapter 6, and I've entitled the lesson this morning, Getting Your Edge Back. Getting your edge back. Now, I want to read to you some odd passages here. And again, you can watch the screen overhead or you can follow along in your Bibles. But listen to these words out of 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. This is what we read. It says, And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. 
I like the old King James Version because it actually says it's too straight. It's too confining. It's too narrow. We'll talk about that some more in just a moment. Verse 2, it says, Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So you're getting the picture here, right? He had borrowed a tool. The tool had broken. He'd lost it in the river. Panic was beginning to set in. Verse 6. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed in the place... So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand, and he took it. Getting your edge back. Getting your edge back. I, as I have mentioned, I've read this on numerous occasions, and it's kind of an odd little incident you find in the Bible. And there is no obvious interpretation to what's going on here. And so we're going to have to dig around just a little bit to try to figure out what the point is and what is trying to be communicated to us because the context of all of this is that apparently there was a problem that was running through the ranks of the apprentice prophets who had associated themselves with the master prophet, Elisha. Now, if you had read the verses preceding this particular point, you'll find out that there was... There was another son of the prophet by the name of Gehazi. And Gehazi apparently was like Elisha's right-hand man. And Elisha was out and about, and this Syrian uh, commander, Naaman, had, uh, had a leprosy issue. He had a skin disease. And so Naaman came, and he found Elisha, and he wanted to be healed. And Elisha ministered to him, and healing came to Naaman, this great Syrian commander, and Naaman was so grateful for the healing, he was so grateful that he was alleviated of this leprosy and skin disease that he wanted to bless Elisha. He wanted to give him some money. And Elisha basically said, no, I don't want anything for it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this as unto the Lord. I'm not looking for any money or anything like that. So we just aren't even going to talk about that. And so Naaman says, thank you. He rides off in his direction and Elisha goes off in his direction, but there's this sidekick by the name of Gehazi who saw this whole thing happen and he's scratching his head. He heard money. And so he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Now, this is all internally. He decides that he's going to go run Naaman down and he tells Naaman this story. He says that Elisha, as he went a little bit further, changed his mind. There were some uh, funds that he could use for some ministry happenings. And so he basically told a story, he told a lie, that he was sent in order to receive some money from Naaman. And so Naaman gives Gehazi this money, and Gehazi takes it. But the problem is, is when you're dealing with a man of God, oftentimes God gives men of God words of knowledge. And so Elisha gets this word of knowledge from God that basically tells him, hey, your sidekick, your servant Gehazi, He's yanking people around. And so 
he confronts Gehazi and Gehazi lies again. And to make a long story short, the leprosy that Naaman was healed from jumps on Gehazi because he mishandled and misappropriated and, and did not do what he was instructed to do. Now, the, the reason that's so important to understand that story is because that story is the one that precedes the one here I just read to you in 2 Kings chapter 6. Gehazi was a part of the sons of the prophets. And it's interesting that we go through this passage on Gehazi. It ends in chapter 5, verse 27. And then if you'll read 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. And guys, if you could post it one more time, that first verse on the screen. This is how it started out. And. Everyone say and. And the sons of the prophets. So get this just for a minute. Keep it up there, guys. So in other words, here's Gehazi functioning in this greed. He's disobeyed his spiritual authority. He's doing what he wants to do. He's not being obedient. He's, he's, he's functioning out of his greed. There's a problem going on in Gehazi, right? And the sons of the prophets. Now, the reason I'm spending so much time on that little conjunction and is because sometimes when people read 2 Kings chapter 6, they actually think there's something kind of okay or good going on in this account. I want you to know that there is some virus that's going through the sons of the prophets. There's a problem that's going through these people who have associated themselves with Elisha. Now, in those days, many of you know this, in those days you didn't go off to seminary somewhere to study for the ministry. In those days, you didn't go to Bible college. In those days, what happened was that if you had aspirations really towards anything, it didn't matter whether you were a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. If you were, if you were training to go to some sort, into some sort of vocation, what you would do is you would attach yourself to a master in that area and you would apprentice yourself. Are you following me? You'd apprentice yourself with that master baker, that master butcher, you know, that master construction worker or master prophet. You would attach yourself and you would apprentice with them. And what you would literally do is you would just hang out with them 24-7. And you'd, you'd watch what they do and how they do it. And they would teach you along the way. And whether it was in what we might call a secular field or whether it was a ministry field, it didn't matter. That's how training took place in that particular era. And so when you read the phrase, the sons of the prophets, what that meant was, is that here were these group of guys, probably younger men. They had attached themselves to Elisha and they were learning or supposed to be learning the ways of ministry, the ways of the master prophet. And that's how it worked in those days. That's why Elisha, as you will recall, attached himself to Elijah, right? And when Elijah passed off the scene, then Elijah's mantle or Elijah's anointing or Elijah's giftings were transferred over to Elisha. Same with Moses and with Joshua. Moses was this incredible leader. Joshua was his servant. When Moses goes off the scene, everything's transferred over to Joshua. That's what Paul did with Timothy. Paul mentored Timothy and Timothy attached himself to Paul. And that's how it worked in those days. And so here we find this group, the sons of the prophets, who had attached themselves to Elisha. 
But there's a problem. There's a virus that's going through all of the mentorees. There's something that has happened inside these ranks and it's not good. We see Gehazi dealing with his greed, but now we come to the rest of the group and they've got something going on inside of them too. And that's what begins to be unveiled to us in this chapter. They look at each other and they kind of pull their their master prophet in. They, they pull in their spiritual dad into the conversation and they sort of decided amongst themselves that the place where the ministry was headquartered out of, the Scripture says, is too small. This is what's really interesting. It's too small for us. Now, in the Hebrew, that word doesn't mean that it is, you know, that it is, you know, square footage, you know, small. What that literally meant in the Hebrew was, was that they felt like that the place was insignificant. The place where you've got us right now, there's, there's little notoriety here. I mean, it's a little confining. It's insignificant. It's kind of off the beaten path. We don't have any visibility. Nobody knows we're here. If anybody wants to know about this ministry, it seems like we're always having to just kind of get the word out here. I mean, there's a lot better locations. You know it's all about location, don't you? You know what the three words of real estate is? Location, right, location, location. And I can hear them there saying, hey, you know, if the, if, if, if the local butcher is down there and has, he has a great location, then we ought to have a great location. I mean, if, if this construction company has a great location, we ought to have a great location. And so the sons of the prophets were kind of were kind of yayan about how how the place they were at just didn't have enough notoriety for them. That's a really important two words for us. So they said, here's what we need to do. We need to take this ministry and we need to go down to the Jordan. We, we, we need to go set up down by the Jordan. That's a much better location if we just start building down there by, by the river. Now, you have to understand in those days they didn't have interstates. You know, they didn't have roads conventional roads like we have today. So, um, you know, other places were popular. And the Jordan was like, you know, a popular place because everybody had to go to the river. You got your water from the river. You, you did your washing at the river. I mean, everybody at some point or another had to go to the river. And so if you built your ministry close to the Jordan or close to the river where the watering hole is and everybody has to go at some point to the watering hole, I mean, that's a perfect location. They'll know all about us. They'll know about what's going on. You know, location, location, location. And this is what's interesting. Elisha looks at him and he says, Go. Now, that's not exactly a rousing endorsement for the plan. Just says, go, go. And then what's interesting is, is that obviously he wasn't planning on going with them. Because in verse three, it said, please consent to go with your servants. So I don't know how it was that, you know, the Bible's not wired for sound. But apparently when Elisha said go, it wasn't like he was hopping on the bandwagon. Because they literally have to look at him and say, well, aren't you going with us? I mean, aren't you going? Doesn't this make sense to you, Elisha? And they literally had to request of him to go along as well. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment because sometimes whenever I read my Bible, I find it interesting, not only the things that I read, but sometimes I find it interesting the things that I don't read. 
How many of you know that sometimes God will say a lot to you through words, and sometimes He says a lot through silence? And there's some things here which I just find interestingly uh, 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 enlightening because they're, they're conspicuous by their absence. There, there are five things. I'm going to go through this real quick. I don't find here. There are five things God doesn't do here. I don't see here that you would have thought one. If you're going to move your ministry from where it's been located for years, if, if, if you're going to do something as significant as uproot from where it is you've been located for years and you're going to go somewhere else, then it would seem to me that you'd want God involved in this at some level. But it's interesting what we don't find here. Number one, we find no word of the Lord to move. I mean, maybe you see it. I don't. There's nowhere does God come through or some prophetic word break through and say, verily, verily, I say to you, pick up from this insignificant place and move to the Jordan. Location, location, location. You don't see that. There's no, no word of the Lord to move. I just find that interesting. Number two, there was no praying or fasting about the decision. They just decided, hey, this is this just isn't about us. This is this is just too insignificant. We, 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 we are we are far more notable than where we are right now. We want you to know that. And and so so they just assumed, I guess it was God's will. But there was no prayer. There was no fasting about this decision. Number three, I also find it interesting that nowhere in the account was a faith act required or entered into. Isn't that interesting? Nowhere. Do they hear from God and he's soliciting some sort of step on their part of faith? Nowhere do we find them even doing some faith act as unto the Lord. Number four, no supernatural provision was made available for the project. You know, you would think that if God is wanting a ministry to be moved from this obscure, uh, uh, insignificant place to this new location that you would think there would be at least some provision that would come supernaturally to them, but nowhere in all of this. I mean, they had to go borrow tools in order to even do this thing. And, and then finally, number five, I put down here, there was no soliciting of input from spiritual authority. The sons of the prophets, which is really amazing to me, they just bebop it up to their spiritual dad and they just make this declaration. This place is too small for us. We, we, we think it ought to be located somewhere else. They, they weren't asking. Are you following me? They were just speaking. And all of these things I just find interestingly absent. Because at least one or two of these things I would think would be around if indeed this was the will of God to do something like that. And so... As I began just to study all of this out, and I remember Gehazi and Gehazi's greed and the sons of the prophets are now pushing an agenda in order to get themselves into a new location, it just sort of resonated in me that this whole account is about a group that was wanting to do what they wanted to do, and they were determined they were going to do it. Because... Because you see, as long as we're doing it for God, it's okay that we violate 15 principles. Because it's all for Him. I'll say this again. The end never justifies the means. I mean, you, you can twist things around and say God's in it and that, but if you're violating His precepts along the way, it ain't God. 
that's getting you to this moment. So they begin to go about this particular agenda. They go and borrow tools and materials. And while they're borrowing these tools and materials and they're beginning to work on this new location, we find the story turning to one of them who's working on a tree. Now that spoke to me. If you wonder, if you're here and you say, well, why are people chuckling? We've got a tree out there on our new property that has become my thorn in the flesh. It's a red oak. It's about 30 inches around. It's standing right in the middle of a road. And it has become sort of the uh, uh, epitome of the challenge that we have had to break through and break into our new property, a tree. It's amazing what a tree can do. And here we find one of them working on a tree. And, and that got my attention because, because I'm working on a tree. Amazing. It's amazing how God was fixing to use a tree to make a point. Oh, don't miss this point, Legacy. God's about ready to use a tree to make a point. This guy's working on this tree. He's, he's got this borrowed axe and he's, and he's wailing away on this, this tree. He's, he's building a new ministry site, a new ministry center. He's working at it. And all of a sudden, as he's, as he's hitting the tree, maybe he's going back. And as soon as he goes back, the axe head breaks off of the handle. And, and it's lost in the rivers of the Jordan. And at that particular moment, in, in very uh, literal terms, they lost their edge. They lost their edge. All of a sudden, he's standing there and all he's, all he's got a hold of is a handle. I don't know if you've ever tried cutting down a tree with just a wood handle. You ain't getting very far with just that wood handle. You got to have an edge on that thing. And uh, somehow or another, they had to get their edge back. And he was a little bit concerned because, of course, it was a borrowed tool. And by the panic that I read out of the scripture, it appears to me that, that, if, he'd have, that if he broke this axe or, or, or somehow this axe was uh, returned in this diminished capacity, that he could be in a lot of trouble because he's scrambling to figure out what in the world he should do because, you see, he'd lost his edge. Now, I'm going to spring off of that, and, and I realize I'm kind of using a pun here, so just, just go with it, all right? But the truth of the matter is, is that there comes a moment, I think, in people's lives that they have to recognize as to whether they're doing the work, whether it be of the ministry, the work of your calling, the work of God's will, the work of His purposes. I think there comes a moment in everyone's life where they have to ask themselves the question, am I beating trees with a handle, or do I have an edge in my life? Now you say, well, what do you mean, what do you mean by an edge? Well, I believe sometimes as a Christian, even as a church, I know as a pastor, we can be working at good things. Let's understand, there's nothing ostensibly evil going wrong here. I mean, it's not like they're doing something that's, you know, just really egregiously bad. 
I mean, come on, they're wanting to move a ministry center from an obscure location to somewhere where it gets more visibility. I mean, you could make a grand case that that's really a pretty good thing. So they're not doing something evil and they're busy about the work of the ministry and life and the kingdom. But the problem is what happens is, is that we slowly begin to lose sight of the fact that we've lost our edge when it comes to living and doing God's will. And this young prophet obviously saw this blade fly into the water. And, and I can assure you that this whole group, listen to me, this whole group had lost their spiritual edge long before they lost the axe head into the waters. In fact, the dictionary tells me that one definition for the word edge is the concept of advantage. When you have an edge, think about this. If you've got an edge in an area, what that means is you've got an advantage in an area. I mean, if you watch sports and a team has an edge in a certain area, what that means is they have an advantage. They've got the edge in this particular area. And, and there should be an edge. There should be an advantage being in league with the Lord. Don't you think so? I mean, if, if we're serving God and, and, and God is in us and he's, and he's talking to us and working in us and, and God is who he says he is, there should be an edge of being able to hear God's voice. An edge of seeing his power being released. An edge to see miracles unfold, resource come. There's an edge, it just seems to me, when you walk with the Lord, at least there should be. Don't you think so? If we're serving the God of the universe, and he is who he says he is, and if I'm in league with him, that should give me an edge. But there was no edge here. There was nothing of the sort. The problem is when you begin to lose your edge, you find yourself trying to take trees out with dull axe handles. And all you end up doing is sweating like dogs and making no progress. Do you know to some extent and at various times and in various ways and to varying degrees, I think all of us in this room probably know the feeling of losing your edge. Where are the miracles? Where are the notable moments? Where's God's voice? There's even a time in the scripture where it says, where's the God of Elijah? Think about this for just a moment. They are borrowing tools. Just get a, get a hold of the picture. They're out borrowing tools. When not but a few days earlier, leprosy was being healed. They were borrowing tools when just, just a few weeks earlier, a widow's son had been raised from the dead. They're out borrowing tools, trying to figure out how to cut down a few trees. But yet, they saw the account of Elisha going to the widow and told her to get as many pots as she could find because God was fixing to fill her pots up with oil. And the only thing that stopped the oil was that she couldn't find any more pots. And now they're out borrowing tools. Is something wrong with this picture? They've lost their edge. They're not doing anything evil. It's not bad. It's not like it's egregiously wrong. But all of a sudden, they're doing God's work. But there's none of the advantage that normally shows up that's taking place in all of their life. And so the question is, do you want to get your edge back? Do you, do you want to get to the place again where you're not swinging at trees with dull axe handles, but that there's a divine edge to your life again 
And when you're laid to the side of a tree, you're going to find it not being taken down just because you swing at it a lot, but there's going to be a supernatural aspect to it that begins to take out and cut down and uproot and begins to manifest the will of God and the ways of God and the miracles of God and the power of God in such a way that is befitting of a child of God who says he's got the edge, he's got the advantage because God is working in his life. Do you want to get your edge back? And I think one of the reasons we fast, listen to me, I think one of the reasons we fast as a people and we fast as a church is because of this. I believe that if we don't do it any more than once a year, it probably needs to be done at least once a year for the purpose that it's a good time at the beginning of the year to make sure we get our lives sharp again and we get our edge back. How do you get your edge back? I'm going to share just a couple of things here. How do you get your edge back? Number one is, is that you got to realize you lost it. You got to realize you lost it. Here's the good news. The good news is when that axe head came off that thing, he instantly recognized he lost it. Now, this is what the sad part is. The sad part is, is that there are people all over America who have lost their axe head and they don't even get it yet. They're just beating at things, wondering why God's not moving. And, and they don't even realize that they've lost their edge. I remember years ago, I, I, uh, I left a denomination. I was a part of another denomination. They, they were good people. Nothing wrong with them. They loved the Lord. But there was something in my life that was missing, and I knew it was missing. I wanted to see God move and live bigger in my life. And so I had to leave a denomination. And when I remember when I left and I made that transition, there were a lot of, there were a lot of things that happened. But I'm telling you, there, there was a renewal and a restoration of the, the miracles of God and the power of God. And it was amazing what God did. I think back to the late 80s and, and the early 90s in my life and my spiritual walk. And I'm telling you, man, there was an edge. There was an advantage. God was doing stuff. I can think back to those days and it just, I, it's just a wonderful reflection that I can have. But can I share this with you? Something, though, happened to me along the way. I think it happens to everybody if you aren't careful. You know, a lot of times we get into this thing called Christianity and especially spirit-filled Christianity and God does a lot of amazing things on the front end. But what happens is, is that we fall into man-pleasing and we fall back into our flesh and we fall back into just fleshly, earthly, natural strategies. We live in the world so constantly and we're pressured so constantly to conform into the ways of the world that it's hard for us to shake off the mentalities of those around us and to keep our mind and our eyes fixed on a supernatural, miracle-working God. And I'll never forget, because I was a pastor, if you don't think it doesn't happen to pastors, I'm telling you it's happening all over America. We got pastors who at one time moved in the things of the Spirit and they saw the miracle workings of God, but they're so concerned about pleasing man and pleasing people and marketing strategies and demographic precepts, positioning their church for maximum results, the new theory, the new study, all these things. And we've, we've made it so naturalized. I've got people who call me on the phone now who have seen us trying to build there south of town and, and they want to show me, they want to show me all their demographic charts and they want to show me all of their theories and they want to show me all of these things. And you know what? We're swinging at trees with dull axe heads. 
We're so smart in the flesh and we're so stupid in the spirit. Because I'm telling you, I'm listening to bankers and architects and land engineers. I'm listening to, to consultants. I'm listening to people call me over this and that and the rest. Can I just share this with you? I've heard from everybody and there's still a dumb oak tree. Oak tree. Why don't you go show your oak tree your demographic study? Oak tree, here's my demographic study. You must come down. <sighs> didn't you see, didn't you see my land engineering plat, oak tree? Aren't you impressed by that? Oak tree didn't move. See, that, you can learn a lot through a tree. You can learn a lot. And there was a time, I'm just telling you, I, and, 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 and I'm just, you see, until you get to the place where you can admit that it's not where it should be, you'll never get to where you need to be. So you're trying to get to where you want to be and retain your, your dignity and your pride. And until you admit that you have lost your edge, that you're not seeing God work in your life, it wasn't like it used to be in your life. Things have dried up. You're beating things with dull blades or axe handles and things aren't moving like they used to move. Until you can admit that you've lost it, you'll never regain it. I remember years ago when I went through all of this, some of you were with me in those years, just right before legacy started. I'd lost my edge for a while. I've already told this story. And I'll never forget the day when I looked in a mirror, literally in a bathroom mirror, and I looked in the mirror and I said, Kevin, what have you become? There was a day, there was a day you, you could pray through things and they would move. There was a day that you'd walk in faith and things would happen. And now all of a sudden, you, you, you're on book lists and you read and yeah, you're, you, you've got some sense and you've, you've, you're academically put together. But you, you can't move a tree. And I've had people, I remember what was so interesting is when I told the story uh, before, I've had people come up to me and said, yeah, yeah, we, we knew, Pastor, we knew you were kind of dry during those times. We knew the anointing lifted. Well, that's really great. That's great that you saw that. My question is, when are you going to see it in your life? Because truth of the matter is, I, 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 don't, I don't see people lining up in front of your house with their pots ready to be filled up with oil. See, you can't fix what you refuse to admit you've lost. There was a day you prayed for people in grocery stores. There was a day you prophesied to your neighbors. There was a day you cried out for the harvest. There was a day that you walked by faith daily. There was a day, think back to it. I'm not, I'm not making you feel guilty. I'm saying think back to that day when your walk with God was fresh and you got before Him and you, and you, and you stepped out and you did things that people thought were nuts or crazy. You, you, you did things as acts of obedience and acts of faith and God moved miraculously in your life. And truth of the matter is, is you got safe. We're safe again. We're going we're gonna to live for God. Just make it safe. We're beating trees with axe handles and we've lost our edge. Can I just share this with you? This is where I'm at. An oak tree ought not stand before the church of the living God. Amen. But you got to realize you lost it. Number two, they reconnected to the pipeline of anointing. 
It's interesting that the minute they lost it, what they did was they went back to Elisha. So they said, we got to get reconnected because Elisha knows what to do in situations like this. Can I just share this with you? It's interesting how when they knew they lost their edge, they didn't huddle up in a committee meeting to figure out how to dredge the bottom of the Jordan to get their axe head back. They reconnected with the miraculous. They wanted to be under the faucet of the anointing again. And folks, we got to reconnect and make sure we're connected to the pipeline of anointing. And that's why I'm connected to the pastors I'm connected to. I want to be around people who will believe God, that will, that will believe in the miraculous dealings of God. I want to stay connected to the pipeline of anointing. I don't need just the pipeline to, to, to another lesson, to another leadership precept. I need the pipeline to the anointing. It's the anointing that breaks the yoke. It's the anointing that makes the difference. It's the anointing that changes the atmosphere. They had to reconnect. Number three, you got to recognize where you lost it. They had to recognize. Remember, Elisha looked at him here in this particular passage and he said, uh, where'd you lose it? Take me to the place that you lost it. And I thought to myself, why in the world would they have done that? You know, go back to the place where he lost it. I think there are two reasons here. Number one is, is that when you go back to the place you lost it, I think when you see why you lost it, you'll never do it again. And number two is, I think you have to go back to the place you got off the track and repent and make your path straight again. I want you to ask yourself, if you're here this morning and you would be honest enough to say with me, you know what, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't have the edge like I used to have it years ago. Ask yourself, where did you lose it? Why did you lose it? If you're not where you are spiritually and if you're not where you are in seeing God move, in amazing ways, if for somehow you know that, that you've drawn back or you've backed up or it's not like it was and you'd be honest enough to say, yeah, you're right, Pastor. I've lost my edge. I've worried about other things and I, I need to get back. Ask yourself, where do I need to go? Where did I lose it? How did I lose it? Was it because maybe you became consumed with material things? Was it because you just you know, became frightened and fearful and, and you just began to hold on with clutching hands everything in your life for fear that somehow you're going to lose it all? Did you get involved in a new relationship in some form or fashion and, and they've got you off the beaten path? Somewhere or another, did your priorities get obscured? Did you quit reading the Word? Did you quit spending time before the Lord? I don't know, but you've got to recognize where it is you lost it. And begin to go back to that place. Make it right. So you can begin to move forward. Number four. Elisha peels off this branch apparently. And the scripture tells us that he threw a stick into the water. Now I tell you what that means. Because everybody I know believes this to be true. And that is that stick represents the cross. The Jordan River was interesting. Uh, it was muddy and an obscure river. You couldn't see much in the Jordan. It was just always a murky river. So when that axe head went into the river, even if it was a good day, you wouldn't be able to find it. And so Elisha throws the stick, the Scripture says, out into the middle of the Jordan. And instantly the axe head floats to the top. The stick had the ability to, to clear things up, to bring things forth. And that's what the cross does. The cross always clears things up. In fact, I think it's somewhat paradoxical that the young prophet was trying to remove a tree 
And, and yet it was from the tree that God uses that moment to lift up that very axe head. I just thought it's interesting that we live in an era where you don't hear about the cross much anymore. We live in an era where we're not wanting to, to preach about the offense of the cross and that Jesus died for us on a cross and that He reconciled us to God the Father because He died the death you and I were designed to die. But now we don't have to. And, and yet we're trying to get rid of the cross because it brings an offense. We're trying to get rid of the cross because it, it's exclusive. It, 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 it puts it out there. There is no other way to God except through Christ and His cross. And yet we're trying to, to take away the cross. We're trying to cut out the cross. And yet I find it paradoxical that it's the tree. It's the very thing we want to get rid of is the very thing that will get our edge back. The cross. We're in a crossless era. We've got to understand that, that if we want our edge back, we've got to get back to the power of the cross. And then finally, just number five, and we'll wrap things up. We've got to reach for it yourself. In fact, Elisha looked at him and he said, where did it fall? And they showed him the place. And then there in that last verse, verse 7, he said, pick it up for yourself. Pick it up for yourself. Only you can decide whether or not you want the edge back in your life. Only you can decide whether or not you want to see God move again like he used to move. Only you can decide whether or not you want to recover your first love and your first passion. If you want to see the miracles restored to your life. I can think back in my own life to some amazing miracle moments that I have not seen in years. And my cry has been, oh God, I want it as it was in the beginning again. I want it in the beginning. And the key for me as it is for you, we got to reach out and pick it up for ourselves. I think it even transcends just us as individuals. I wonder if we as a church will pick up the edge of the Spirit's activity in our region. I don't know if other churches will pick it up or not, but will we pick it up? Will we dare to say yes? Will we say yes to the truth that God still heals? And you know, He'll even heal us on a Sunday morning. Will we still say yes that God moves in amazing, miraculous, manifested ways where there may even be expressions of the Holy Ghost in a Sunday morning service if you could believe that. Well, you might, you might, you know, somehow freak someone out. Listen, we're swinging at trees with axe handles unless we get our edge back. Will we dare to say yes that God will deliver you? He, if you're... If you're right now bound or addicted or you're struggling with something internally and you're, you're needing to be set free, I want to declare to you that before you leave this morning, Jesus can set you free. This morning. I believe in process and I believe in discipleship. But there are some things that can happen instantaneously if you just decide you want to get your edge back. Will we dare to say yes? Yes, God delivers. Yes, God prospers. Yes, we'll pray in the Spirit because it's in the Bible. Yes, there are times we're going we're gonna to be a little bit different than other folks because we, we believe that there's an edge to these things of the Spirit. I just personally believe that as a whole Pentecostalism and even the charismatic movement, and you may not know what I mean when I use those terms, and maybe that you're just better off. But I've been around these circles for a lot, a lot of years. And I'm just telling you, we have lost our edge. 
We are so worried about being the biggest, the best, the glitziest, the most technology, having the most people in our seats. We are so worried about the measuring stick of people's affirmation and will we make it to Outreach Magazine and will we be in the top 100 of this or the top 50 of this? And we've lost our edge. We've lost our edge. We've got people attending, but they're not free because we're swinging at roots with axe handles. And nothing's happening. And God's saying, do you want your edge back? I don't think we have anything else to offer, folks. Except the edge. I guess if it weren't so sad, it'd be comical because the church is trying to appear more and more in touch with the world while the world's trying to figure out how in the world it can get in touch with God. And I think it's just time they got a look at him through our lives if we'll get our edge back. Amen. Will you stand with me, please?